Let that be our prayer this morning, that we would rejoice in that, in the gospel of God's Son. And we're actually going to turn now to that gospel, so let me have you take your Bibles out and turn to Mark's gospel, Mark's recording of the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Mark to chapter 1, and we'll read verses 9 through 20 this morning. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 9, and as we read this, let us once again remind ourselves that this is God's word spoken to us, written to us, that we may receive blessing by it. Let us hear these words this morning. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Father, we pray now for your blessing upon this time. Lord, we we thank you that you have... uh, given to us the ministry of the preached word. And we pray, Father, that you would bless that ministry this morning. Bless the one who preaches. Bless us who hear, Lord, that we may hear with ears made able to hear by your Spirit. And may we be eager to hear what you have for us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, beloved congregation, this morning, we are witnesses through the record of Mark, likely taken this information from the ministry, the preaching ministry of the Apostle Peter. This morning, we are witnesses to the beginning of the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We have seen, we have read Mark's introduction to his gospel in the past, which is to say his inspired record of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and how the beginning of that good news was seen in the, in the coming of the one who broke the silence after 400 years of silence since God's last proclamation through his prophet Malachi, 
But we saw that the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ began with the one who came before him, this forerunner, another prophet, as John describes him, a man sent from God whose name was John, John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, who was sent to, according to the words that predicted his arrival, as a voice crying in the wilderness to prepare the way and the people for the coming of the Messiah, the long-awaited anointed servant of God who would come for his people, God's own son. He preached of his coming on the scene, or we read of his coming on the scene, John's coming on the scene, and his preaching of repentance and his baptizing people as a sign of the forgiveness of sins. And we heard of his preaching that he told people that there was one who was coming after him. The very one that he, John, was preparing the way for. And that this one was far and away more important than John. He was more important. His ministry was going to be a better ministry. Far and away a better ministry. It's given to us in these words that that I baptize you with water but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then last week, we saw the coming of that one of whom John the Baptist was the herald, was the forerunner. He came, John said, from Nazareth of Galilee. He came and immediately he himself was baptized at his own insistence, baptized by John in the Jordan. Not because he needed to repent, not because he needed to obtain forgiveness as the divine son of God, of course, he had no sin. But because, as we saw last week, he was identifying himself with those whom he came to save. He was identifying himself with his people. He was coming to live among them. He did it in his baptism And he will do it again at the other end of his ministry when he hangs on a cross and and ultimately identifies with sinners by bearing their sin and their guilt. The guilt and the sin of everyone who calls upon him knowing that they do need the forgiveness of those sins. And we read last week that after after Jesus was baptized... We read of the descending Spirit of God and the divine approval of God the Father upon Jesus, the Son of God. That voice from heaven, you are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. And with that approval and with that anointing and enabling Spirit upon him, Jesus left and went immediately into the depths of the inhospitable wilderness made all the more inhospitable by the presence and the activity of Satan himself. And in verses 15 and 16, or I'm sorry, and and in those verses we saw, verses 12 and 13, we saw how Jesus prevailed against the devil. And so Jesus, having been approved by the Father, having been equipped by the Spirit, and having been victorious over the temptation of the enemy, Jesus has now embarked on his public ministry. And here in verses 14 through 16, we see Mark's introduction of Jesus' message and of Jesus' mission. 
And that's going to be our outline because that's what we see in these verses. The message of Jesus, the mission of Jesus. In verses 14 and 15, we see the message of Jesus. We read Mark writing here in verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Mark begins here, interestingly, by by adding this little note that says, Now after John was arrested. And there's continuity there because we've just heard of the ministry of John both before and and after Jesus comes on the scene. But also by doing this, he sets the, the events that are going to follow in a historical framework. It's after John was arrested that these things happen. He also, by saying this, separates the ministry of John as the forerunner from that of Jesus himself separates the work of the herald of the king from the work of the king himself. Jesus does not begin his public ministry in Mark's gospel here until the work of the forerunner is complete. And he says very simply here, now after John was arrested. Now he doesn't explain to us in his his style, he doesn't explain to us why John was arrested. And, as far as that goes, Mark will revisit this in sort of a flashback later on in in chapter 4. He will talk about the arrest of John, the reason for it, and the outcome of it. So we'll wait until we get to chapter 4 to speak of those things. It also points, the way that he begins this, he points to the fact that the good news of Jesus, the proclamation of the gospel that Jesus is about to embark on, comes in the context, very often, of bad news. The John has, has suffered. He has suffered uh, his arrest. And that in the very midst of that difficulty, in the very midst of that suffering, we have the proclamation of good news. Because we very often hear the good news when we're in the midst of a bad time. In fact, all of us, when we heard it and when we responded to it, were in a bad time. The worst of times. We were destined for hell. But Mark tells us that after this, after his arrest after John's arrest, that Jesus, who had been down in the area of Judea and in Jerusalem, that when news of John's arrest reaches him, he goes back up north into the area of Galilee. And he does so, verse 14 says, proclaiming the gospel of God. Mark, again, in a very compact way here, tells us what Jesus is about, really. He tells us what his message is in all of the areas where he is going to be preaching. And it is, not at all surprisingly, the gospel. That is, the good news. The good news of salvation. The good news that God is bringing salvation to men through him. In that unique place where Jesus stands, he both proclaims a gospel, he proclaims a gospel that is about himself, and in all reality, he is the gospel. He is the good news. The forgiveness of sins, which is so desperately needed by every person, 
then and now, and the means of that forgiveness, and the great blessings which come along with it, eternal life. That's the subject of Jesus' preaching. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the gospel that Jesus preaches. That God had done, as Paul says later in Romans chapter 8, that God has done what the law could not do by sending his Son. That the Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and to lay down his life for many. The gospel that Jesus preached is the truly good news to man, to men and women and children who are to a person dead in their trespasses and sin and without hope in the world. And more importantly, without hope for the world thereafter. And it is the good news Jesus preaches, the good news concerning the coming of the kingdom of God. We'll see that in a moment. But this is the message of Jesus. This is the gospel. As was prophesied, Back in Isaiah 61, God has anointed Christ to come and he said to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You know that elsewhere that Jesus read that from the scroll of Isaiah and said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. How? By him. By him coming. By him coming, proclaiming the gospel of God. That's the message of Jesus. This is the gospel. The message which Jesus preaches from the very opening of his ministry and which his church still preaches today. Because not one thing has changed. Man's need has not changed. Sin has not been eradicated in even one person by the efforts of man. The punishment for sin has not been changed. It has not been overruled. It has not been legislated away. It has not been retracted. God has not forgotten either his holiness or man's unholiness. And he has not changed the fact that the soul that sins shall surely die. That has not changed. God's nature has not changed. He is still the perfectly just judge of all the earth who will by no means clear the guilty. But his nature has also not changed in the fact that he is also gracious and loving and shows pity on those who need it. And he has provided a way, a way, the way, the glorious way for sinners to be free from the guilt of their sin, for you and I to be free from the guilt of our sin and to be rescued from the eternal death that they face and that they and we deserve 
And he has provided the way that we can instead be granted the gift of eternal life. And that way, Mark says, has come to Galilee. And that way is preaching the good news. And this term, the gospel of God, is the way that Mark summarizes the content of Jesus' preaching. And we're reminded here in this unique way of phrasing it that this is God's gospel. He is its conceiver. He is its author. He is its producer. The gospel is not something that men cloistered together in a room somewhere and and hammered out and worked out and wrote down and proclaimed themselves. Man could never conceive this. Man wasn't even aware, is not even aware of his desperate situation. And even if he were able to be aware of it, apart from God revealing it to him, the answer for it, the remedy for it, is so far beyond his ability. With man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. With God it is possible. And he has laid out how, is it po- how it is possible that we can receive forgiveness. And that way, beloved, is the gospel. And he sent his son to humanity, in humanity, to proclaim that gospel and to be that good news. To secure that gift of redemption. And that's all wrapped up here. As Mark says, that after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. In verse 15 then, Mark details that good news in three ways as Jesus proclaimed it. First, he writes that Jesus was proclaiming that the time is fulfilled there in verse 15. And by that, Jesus is saying not that a certain time on the clock had come, that a certain number of days or a certain number of years, a certain number of centuries have elapsed, but rather he is pointing to the fact that a time, an event has come to pass. A time determined by God has been reached. An event has taken place. A time has come. A time for which the world had been waiting since Genesis 3 and the fall. It is the time. The time that is fulfilled. Is the time of the fulfillment of so many of those Old Testament promises. Promises that God would send his messenger that he would send his servant to rescue his people. A time when God himself would come and usher in a new period of blessing and of joy and of peace for his people. When he would rescue his people from from oppression and when he himself would reign over them, when he himself would be their shepherd. A blessed time of God's rule of God's protection, promised in the Old Testament under the the pictures of physical blessings, 
but pointing beyond those to, to the glorious blessings of the new covenant. Jesus says the time is fulfilled. He's saying it is the opening day of the kingdom of God. So long prophesied. Now it is here. The hour, the time of the realization of, of Old Testament passage, passages like the one that Jim read this morning in Isaiah 9. This is the long-expected event of the arrival on the scene of the Messiah, that decisive world-altering, eternity-altering moment has come. And Jesus says that that time is fulfilled. This is the fulfillment of it. It is the fulfillment now of what John the Baptist said was going to happen. The greater than John one, the one who will baptize in the Holy Spirit, has arrived in accordance with the eternal plan of God the Father, the fullness of time, as Paul speaks of it in Galatians. The history of redemption has, at this time, on this day, reached its high point in the coming of Jesus. With the fullness of time and the coming of the Messiah, the promises of restoration and redemption are being fulfilled as God begins to act in a, in a new and decisive way. And, and the dividing line is, is right here. Whereas John, I mentioned a few weeks ago that John the Baptist is really an Old Testament figure, And whereas John spoke of what was to come, Jesus' focus is on fulfillment. John said, there is one coming after me. Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand, he says. Jesus is announcing the pinnacle of history here. All that has gone before has looked forward to this time. And all that, all that will come after will look back to this time. To this time when the kingdom of God came among the kingdom of men. And the second aspect of Mark's summary of Jesus' message here is just that. He says, not only is the time fulfilled, but Jesus said, and the kingdom of God is at hand. What is Jesus saying here? Or perhaps more precisely, what is Mark telling us regarding the content of the gospel preaching of Jesus? What does Jesus mean that the kingdom of God is at hand? This is wonderful. This is is important. This statement that we read, the kingdom of God is at hand in that one sentence that encompasses the life and the ministry of Jesus in seven words. That is a comprehensive statement of all of the teaching of Jesus. It's even broader than that. It encompasses the teaching of the entire scripture. The concept of the kingdom of God is the purpose of history. Especially of God's working in what we call redemptive history. That we have recorded for us in the scripture. 
Now, the concept of the kingdom of God can be a little tricky. It can be hard to define mainly because it is so broad. It is so uh, far-reaching. It is inclusive of so much of God's decree and of his activity in the world. And it begins in the Old Testament. Although the term kingdom of God never occurs in the Old Testament, the concept is rooted in the Old Testament. Which makes sense, otherwise how would Mark's original readers and Jesus' original hearers have had any idea of what Jesus meant when he said the kingdom of God is at hand? In fact, it's rooted in the very earliest record of the Old Testament. We begin by, by noting that God is the king over his creation. That's a good place to start. That's a simple place to start. God is creator. Everything else is creation. And God is sovereign. God is ruler. God is king over that which he has made. Psalm, 1, or Psalm 10 verse 16 says, The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. Something else that we see in the Old Testament in regard to this idea of God's kingship is that God has very often used men under him to rule over his kingdom. In fact, in the original creation, Adam was made to be a vice-regent, a king under the king. God, the ultimate king, gave to Adam, the underling king, what? He gave him dominion over all of the creation. He was to subdue the earth and take dominion over it. He had control over the plants. And he gave names to all the animals. And whatever, God said, whatever you call an animal, that will be its name. So what Adam was thinking when the duckbill platypus came before him, I have no idea. But really, God is the king over his people. And that's seen in the fact that a little later on when the people ask Samuel for a king like the other nations, God says to Samuel, he says, the people aren't rejecting you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And that continued. We don't have time to exhaust a look at the kingdom of God here. But it continued in that sort of shadow form like so much in the Old Testament did. It continued in that way through the, the days of the Old Testament theocracy, the nation of Israel, the shadow of the kingdom of God in the Old Testament. And sometimes that, that shadow would be very distinct, with very sharp edges and very easy to see, such as under David and Solomon and later under Hezekiah and Josiah. But at other times, so many other times, it seemed to be the faintest representation of the true kingdom of God. And at other times, it seemed to have disappeared nearly completely. Most evidently, when, when ten of the twelve tribes that made up this, this nation, this kingdom, defected from the kingdom to start their own kingdom. 
and ended up being destroyed and dispersed through the nations. And then the faithful two tribes are themselves sent into exile, into Babylon. And the prophets spoke of that. The prophets warned about that was coming. The prophets warned against the kings forgetting the true king. And then when it was inevitable that there would be punishment, the prophets came and propounded that, that punishment. But always with it, there was the promise of restoration, the continuance of the kingdom. Still, there was this promise of God's king to come, a king that God said in Psalm 2 that he had set on Zion, that he had appointed, that he had anointed, and who would sit on the throne of his kingdom forever. Something else we learn about when God spoke to David and swore to David that he would, that God would, in the raising up of the offspring of David, he would establish a kingdom, and that that kingdom, ruled over by a son of David, would be made sure forever. A throne that God would establish forever. A promise of an eternal kingdom reign. In fact, the word that we translate kingdom and this idea of the kingdom of God actually is an abstract noun. It refers to the sovereign reign. Not so much of a, of a kingdom, It's a state of affairs, it's a state of rule, rather than a marked-off territory. Which leads us to this important fact, that the kingdom of God, in its truest and broadest, most general use, refers to the rule and the reign of God in the hearts of his people. The reign of God operative in the lives of his people. The kingdom of God is the royal reign of God among his people. And now Jesus says that the fullness of time had come. Now that not only the forerunner, but now the Messiah himself had come. The clouds lifted, the shadows were replaced by the reality. And Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand. It has come. And we see that clearly in this idea that the kingdom is not a place, it's a reign. When the Pharisees asked Jesus when the kingdom was going to come, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The kingdom was in their midst and they didn't know it. They didn't see it. The kingdom was in their midst because the king was in their midst. The kingdom of God is present wherever the king holds sway. The kingdom of God is God's kingship, his recognized sovereignty. It's not a natural kingdom. It's not a physical kingdom. It's a supernatural kingdom. In in the midst of the most repressive 
atheistic kingdoms of man on the earth, the kingdom of God is also there in the hearts of his people that he has there. And the blessings of of that kingdom consist of all the blessings of the covenant. Blessings secured by the king. The king of the covenant, the servant of the covenant. And thus his kingdom is also referred to as the kingdom of Christ. So when Jesus says that the kingdom of God is at hand, that is not that it's, that it's going to come, not that it's on the horizon, but that it has drawn near. It is now in the state of fulfillment, a fulfillment which has come, but also we need to remember as well, still stretches toward that consummation of the last day. The kingdom is both present and future. Because the kingdom which we experience today is largely a a hidden kingdom. It's like a mustard seed, someone once said. Oh yes, that was Jesus. He said that it is like a mustard seed. It begins tiny and it grows into a great tree. We'll see that when we get to Mark 4 as well. And it exists as truly, more truly, than any other kingdom. But it is a kingdom that finds its expression now within the hearts of God's people as they willingly submit to that reign of God in their lives. But it will eventually find a glorious, final, and eternal expression when Jesus Christ, having subdued every enemy, even the last enemy, which is death, When that is done, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, then comes the end when Jesus delivers the kingdom to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. But today there is a, even now, an outward visible expression of the kingdom of God, and that's the church. The communion of the faithful where God is recognized as king. The head of that king or that kingdom is the king, Jesus. The means of entry into that kingdom is entirely spiritual. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus said, that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The means of entry is spiritual. The means of, well, we might say the means of naturalization in this kingdom is faith alone. See, no one is part of this kingdom by virtue of his humanity. No one is part of the kingdom of God by virtue of of his virtue. But as we mentioned earlier in the service this morning, one is a member of the kingdom of God because one is brought into it, translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. We are naturalized through adoption. 
And it cannot, this kingdom of God cannot, and it will not be brought to full expression by political or moral means. It's a spiritual kingdom and is brought to expression in each one's life through the Spirit. And in the end, the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, Revelation 11.15 says, and He shall reign forever and ever. And that takes place only through the divine and the sovereign work of God Himself. The kingdom will be ushered in. It will be an eternal kingdom. But it's done by God. The law of the kingdom is the word of God. And the future of the kingdom is the new heaven and the new earth. And that's that visible, eternal expression of the kingdom of God. Come to total fruition. Come to to consummation. And on that last day, each and every one of you sitting here this morning, each and every person who is Christ's will be invited to inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. To be in Christ is to be a subject of this kingdom of God, this glorious, far-reaching kingdom. So to summarize all of that, when Jesus proclaims that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand, he is saying that God is now bringing to fruition his purpose for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. That's from Ephesians 1.9. His purpose for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The kingdom is here because the king has come and has dwelt among us. And with this new era of fulfillment proclaimed as having come, having begun, the fullness of time, the kingdom of God, Jesus also reminds us that that news calls for a very definite response. And that's the third thing, the third aspect of of this message of Jesus. And that is the command to repent and to believe the gospel. Now we know, as James tells us, that that faith, in order for it to be true, saving faith, must be accompanied by works, must be shown by works. The works are not what save us, but a a faith that is without those attesting works, James says, is not real faith. Well, the first of those attesting works in, in every Christian's life those verifying works, the first of those, which show faith to be true faith, the first of those is repentance. Now, repentance is not a a, a work in the sense that it's something that sort of begins in here with us and expresses any kind of worth or worthiness in us. Repentance is, is something that we do, and it is something, as Jesus says here, that we must do, but like faith, it is something that we are given. God gives it as a gift, and then we exercise it at the same time as we are exercising the faith that God gives us. We know that faith is a gift of God. Ephesians 2.8 tells us, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourself. It is the gift of God. But it's also true, as Romans 2.4 tells us, that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. There 
two sides of the same coin, faith and repentance. Faith is not possible without repentance. Or to put it positively, all repentance is faithful repentance. And all faith is a repentant faith. When we turn toward God in faith, we are turning at the same time away from sin, away from our old life. As the Spirit gives us a new mind that is oriented toward Christ, as that mind is reoriented toward Christ, it at the same time is reoriented away from sin. And that is what repentance is, a change of mind, a change of direction. And Jesus is saying that that reorienting of one's life and mind and will and purpose is the only proper response to the gospel of God that he came to preach and the proclamation of this manifestation of the kingdom of God which has come, that has come with the coming of the king, Jesus. And so this programmatic statement of Jesus here, this overarching expression of his preaching and his redemptive ministry is hugely important and hugely sweeping and has taken all of our time up this morning. And the details of what all that means is going to be the subject, really, of the rest of Mark's gospel, as well, we might say, as the rest of the New Testament. And next, here, we we begin to see Jesus actively calling people to repent and to believe the gospel as he begins the the mission of his public ministry. And we're going to save that, much to your relief, I'm sure, for next time. But let's pray. Father, we thank you that Christ has come. That's so wonderful, Lord. We thank you that... He came proclaiming the gospel of God. We thank you that he is the good news. That his coming, his intent, his divinity, his humanity, his purpose, his life, his death, his resurrection. That's the good news, Lord. We thank you for it. For without it, we, Lord, had nothing but bad news. We thank you that at his coming, that that time was fulfilled. We thank you that with his coming, that the kingdom of God had come. And we thank you that we, through faith, have been made members of that glorious kingdom. We pray, Father, that you would expand your kingdom. We pray, Lord, that by the preaching of the gospel, that you would bring many others into that wonderful kingdom, translating them from the kingdom of darkness where they dwell into the glorious kingdom of your Son, that place of eternal life. Lord, may we rejoice in you this day for what you have done. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.